Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome to a special Christmas and holiday episode of SCOTUS 101. After today, we'll be on break until the court resumes hearing oral arguments the week of January 11th. Before we head into the break, though, there are two cases that we want to mention. Zach, tell us about those. They're Robinson Kevin et al. v. Murphy, Governor of New Jersey et al. and High Plains Harvest Church v. Paulus, Governor of Colorado, both of which involve those states' COVID-19 attendance restrictions on churches and other houses of worship. This past week, in both of these cases, the court vacated lower court orders and directed them to reconsider those opinions in light of its recent decision in Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn v. New York, where, as you'll recall, the court prevented Governor Andrew Cuomo from enforcing his COVID-19 restrictions, which treated houses of worship worse than other comparable secular institutions. There was no recorded dissent in the New Jersey case, but Justice Kagan, joined by Justices Breyer and Sotomayor, did issue a brief dissent in the Colorado case, indicating that in their view the case was moot because Colorado had rescinded its restrictions. This echoed the dissenting view in the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn case, where Governor Cuomo had also lifted the restrictions prior to that decision, though like here, he remained free to re-implement them at any time. Interestingly, unlike that case, the Chief Justice did not dissent here. On this same subject, you might recall that last July, the Supreme Court, by 5-4 vote, denied a request by churches in Nevada to hear an emergency appeal uh, challenging those COVID attendance limits. Well, on Tuesday, in light of the court's ruling in the New York case, the Ninth Circuit reversed an earlier ruling in that case and ruled in favor of two Nevada churches. Of course, since then, Justice Barrett has replaced Justice Ginsburg on the court, and that seems to have made all the difference. Overall, this is an encouraging development that seems to indicate the Supreme Court and perhaps the lower courts are now going to closely scrutinize restrictions that treat religious institutions less favorably than comparable secular institutions. Dare we say it's a Christmas miracle? Well, I I think it's a Thanksgiving miracle with (laughs) staying power. I'll take it. I'll take it. Well, as we head into the holiday break, we thought it would be a good time to review the term and our show so far. This term will go down in history as the first fully remote one. The pandemic has forced pretty dramatic changes on an institution that quite famously does not like to change. But it has brought some positive developments too. Among them, Justice Thomas now participates in oral arguments on account of them being civil and not the free-for-all that they used to be. And that means that listeners now know what court readers have known for decades, that Thomas shapes the court's intellectual debates in a big way. Two professors, Ron Nell Anderson-Jones and Aaron Nielsen, noted in a recent study of his questions that uh, he ought to ask more of them because he is an ideal questioner. On substantive issues, we haven't gotten many opinions yet because we're early in the term. However, we have seen positive developments in religious liberty jurisprudence. Just last month, things were looking pretty bleak. Federal courts around the country were permitting novel and discriminatory restrictions on houses of worship. But the court has, as Zach explained, now stepped in several times and reminded us all that the Constitution does not quit for a pandemic. As for our humble podcast, we followed along closely and had on professors like Josh Blackman and John Yu, 
to talk about many of the highest profile issues. And of course, we have continued our tradition of interviewing some of the judges that make our judiciary the envy of the world so that you can have a sense of just who these legal luminaries are and, most importantly, how they think. In January, SCOTUS 101 will be full steam ahead with all of that and more of the same right here at Heritage. Zach, what does next year look like for us and, more importantly, for SCOTUS? Well, knock on wood, 2021 can only get better, right? (laughs) Don't tempt fate, Zach. We can only hope. But for the foreseeable future, the court will likely continue hearing arguments telephonically and has confirmed that it will continue to follow that same format for at least the January session. It will also hear and decide many important cases, including a case involving Arizona's election procedures, another one involving whether grand jury materials from former special counsel Bob Mueller's investigation can be released to the House of Representatives, a case challenging the appointment of patent judges, and another one involving the appointment of Social Security administrative law judges, a case involving easements and takings, a case that involves some of the nuances of Fourth Amendment search and seizure law, and a case involving antitrust laws and NCAA eligibility rules, just to name a few. As usual, the second half of the court's term is shaping up to be an exciting one. As for us here at SCOTUS 101, expect to continue hearing the latest on Supreme Court news, as well as trivia and interviews with judges, professors, and practitioners, where we try to provide insight into the workings of the court and the issues it's deciding. So stay tuned. We may be slightly biased, but we think the best is yet to come. Well, Zach, no episode of SCOTUS 101, even a short holiday special, would be complete without trivia. So, are you ready for a good old-fashioned SCOTUS holiday grilling? I'll keep my fingers crossed that we can end the year on a high note. So hit me with it. (laughs) All right. Starting number one. This is your softball, Zach. You ready? That that already scares me a little bit, GC. (laughs) In this 1984 case, the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of a Christmas manger scene in a public park in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Well, there are so many religious display cases, I'm not sure which one in particular originated out of Rhode Island. So I'll have to, uh, you'll you'll have to tell me, GC. Do you want to guess any of the ones that are uh, spinning around in your mind? At risk of embarrassing myself, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this is Lynch versus Donnelly. This is uh, Chief Justice Berger with the opinion, and uh, he noted the history of government subsidies of religious holidays displays and found a secular purpose in their long tradition and context. Got it. Got it. All right, Zach. Next. The court held its first Christmas party in 1946, but it was its 1959 Christmas party that attracted some media attention because it differed from previous parties in a significant way. Do you know what that was? Well, I think at one point, wasn't the court's Christmas parties limited to the justices and their chamber staff? And and I think that changed at some point. I'm not really sure, but I guess, is it the first one where the entire court staff could attend? That is correct. It was the first party that included all the court staff, which meant that it was the first Christmas party that included the court's African-American messengers. Previously, the Christmas parties were open only, like you said, to a limited number of staff, all of whom were white. Number three, the push to hold a court-wide party was actually first led by law clerks in 1947, whose effort was opposed by the court's secretaries. 
Among the clerks at the time was this future justice who was a clerk to Justice Wiley Rutledge. You're asking tough ones today, GC. Well, I know Byron White, uh, clerk for the court in the 40s. I'm not sure if he clerked for Justice Rutledge or not. Um, I'll guess Byron White, but I'm really not sure. No, in this case, it was John Paul Stevens. Interestingly, however, when he was asked later in life about this Christmas party controversy, he didn't recall that race was the sticking point. He, he thought it might have been religion, that, uh, um, that the Christmas party might offend Jewish staff. Which brings us to question number four. Although Justice Stevens didn't remember the racial issues uh, behind this, the Christmas party, we know all about it from the diary of this justice, who hired the first black law clerk, William Coleman Jr., the year after it, 1948. I actually remember reading uh, an article or a story about this, and I think it was Felix Frankfurter, wasn't it? That is correct. Well done. The story of this event was actually brought to life in detail by Ross Davies of uh, George Mason Law School in an article in Green Bag that he published in 2014. He had done a deep dive through Felix Frankfurter's journal, and this was one of the stories that he uncovered. Interesting. These were tough today, GC. I'm sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can only hope uh, that I'll get better at trivia in the new year. No doubt. Well, that's it today for us and for the rest of this year. So thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on social media at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. We hope everyone has a very Merry Christmas and a happy holiday season. See you right here next year. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.